Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you read with me again what we find in Lord's Day 21 on page 49 in the back of your Psalter and looking this afternoon on question and answer 55. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and everyone who believes being members of Christ are in common partakers of him and of all his riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. Oh, beloved congregation, as we've been working through our series on the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, we have come to that part which is expounding the words of the Apostles' Creed, especially as it concerns the Church of Jesus Christ. And the last time we were uh, together on this series, we were considering what it means to confess a holy Catholic church. And among the things that were discussed at that point, we saw that the word Catholic, though abused in our own day by the Roman Catholic Church, yet does not mean communion with the Pope of Rome, but rather the church which is spread out over all places and is found in all ages. The true church of Jesus Christ is Catholic. And when we come to our next question about what it is we confess when we say, I believe in the communion of the saints, we come to a similar problem where the word saint, as it were, has been hijacked in the minds of many people who see it as a Roman Catholic concept. And so even the way people of the world speak, they'll speak about, well, that person is very saintly, or that person should be a saint. And what do they mean by that? Well, they have in view the Roman Catholic definition of a saint. And in order just to understand that a bit, let me refer to you to the latest pronouncement of the Vatican, that is the, the Roman Catholic papacy, about what they consider constitutes a saint. Well, they say it must be an individual uh, freely and voluntarily uh, willing to offer their life in the face of certain death. They say that there must be a close connection with um, their final departure of their death and the offering of their life. And they say that this person must show Christian virtues, at least to an ordinary extent, before and after offering their life. They must have a reputation for holiness, at least after their death. And finally, they must have performed a miracle, so-called. This is... um, how they would differentiate this from other categories of Christian that are included in martyrs, for example. So in the Roman Catholic understanding, to be a saint is to be a particular kind of Christian, one who is connected with the whole um, Roman 
Catholic system that would especially include, for example, the fact that you can pray to the saints in that religious system and have them intercede for you from heaven and and so forth. And to these things, we must say that not only is it flatly heretical, but it is also clearly unbiblical, very different from what the Bible teaches about saints. And as I'm sure you're aware, if you would just scan the introduction to Paul's various letters and epistles, you know that a saint is really any Christian, any believer, and indeed every true Christian is a saint. So Paul writes the letter to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Jesus Christ, which are at Philippi with the elders and deacons. Or Romans 1, verse 2, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, or, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the Christian is called a saint, or literally in the Greek, a holy one. A Christian is holy because they are set apart by God's eternal decree of election. They are set apart because they are bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are set apart to be holy because they are indwelt with the living Holy Spirit of God. In this way, the true believer, the Christian, is a saint. And with this understanding, we can come to see what it is we mean when we refer to the communion of The saints, it is in close connection to the doctrine of the true Catholic Church. For as the universal church of all believers have their unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his salvation, so also we share one another in the closest spiritual bond and fellowship which can exist this side of eternity. And so we consider this theme, the communion of saints, the communion of saints. And uh, looking at the doctrine summarized in our catechism, I'd like to first look at the saint's identity and second, the saint's duty. So, So the communion of the saints, considering first the saint's identity and second, the saint's duty. I think you don't have to um, pay attention to the news very much to know that there is something of an identity crisis in our society today. You can see this in a great many ways. For example, you can see in the various forms of critical race theory, there is a renewed emphasis upon your racial identity as something that, that makes you who you are, who really defines everything about you. And so there, there is this ideology that it's ultimately these relationships defined by those who are privileged, who oppress others by virtue of having power. 
and others who are oppressed. And, and this is the lens through which many people see all of life. And perhaps some of us understand by looking at the news how much friction, how much hurt, and, and even anger and hatred this generates. Not only those who promote it, but also sometimes those who respond to that. It becomes very racially divisive. And of course, we, we see uh, this form of identity politics taking place also when it comes to sexual identities, not only in celebrating forms of sexual immorality and perversion, but also questioning what it really means to be a man or woman at all. Some people have even gone so far as you can't define these things. Everyone needs to develop their own unique flavor of so-called gender identity. And it goes right down the list. I think that perhaps there might be something about our society and the, the kind of uh, world we live in where people feel alienated. They don't know who they are. They're not sure what it means to have an identity. And the wonderful truth of the, the Bible is that for the Christian, for the one who has placed his or her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, their identity is found in him. First of all, it says um, in uh, question and answer 55, first, that all and everyone who believes being members of Christ are in common partakers of him and all his riches and gifts. In the very beginning, you see, when God created man and woman after his own image, he gave them an identity. He gave them a mission. They were to be fruitful, to multiply, to take dominion over the earth and all of its creatures unto the glory of God. Had they never sinned, humanity would have been united together by their common nature as those in the image of God. But after the fall and the rebellion against God, identity takes on this horrible character of trying to find unity with others in all the wrong places. You can see it in that great story, a really terrible story of, of the Tower of Babel, about how the, the races of the world tried to unite together and to forge a tower that would allow them to ascend up to heaven, even into the presence of God, a religious and a political and an ideological project of world hegemony. And what do you have there? The nations had their languages confused as the Lord came down and spread them Abroad and, and ever since, what you've seen is these various projects in order to have a unity of all the different peoples and languages and nationalities through various schemes. But it's very different when it comes to the church of the living God, not through political ideology and, and not through false religion, but rather through spiritual transformation. The Christian is forged a new identity in Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, 
All things are become new. The reality is, Christian, that you have been recreated by the Holy Spirit of God. You are a standing miracle, if ever there was one. Dead in your trespasses and sins, enslaved to the power of the devil, but you have been united to Christ by a living faith. You found your life outside of yourself in him. And so your identity is found in Jesus Christ. Yes, there can be all sorts of secondary things about you. The language you speak. The nationality that characterizes your citizenship or, or your ancestry. You can have a particular culture. You can have a particular Hobby, you can be a man or a woman or a husband or a wife or a, a, a father or a mother, a daughter or a son, you go on. But the most fundamental thing about you must be this. Christ has died for you. Christ, by his spirit, has indwelt you. And you are part of his spiritual body. That is the most basic thing. If you're going to think biblically Christian, it must be here that you begin. You are a new creature in Christ. And the Bible is very clear that this has huge impacts for how we think about all others around us who share that identity. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28 We have something that connects well with what we heard in the morning. Listen to what the Apostle writes. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And this encapsulates very much the solution to the terrible identity crisis of our day. Yes, you can see that there are things lawful here and good and wholesome about different identities. There are Jews and there are Greeks. There are slaves and there are free. There are males and there are females. There's differences in class, differences in background, differences in sex. And yet we look around and we see that all of those who are in Christ, they have this fundamental unity in him. That is what towers over all else. It is the most important thing. And this ultimately is what really should characterize a biblical worldview. Not fitting in Jesus Christ to a wider ideological or philosophical or theological system, but rather seeing that Christ as Lord of all, he defines us and everything about us and especially our relationship to every other believer, every other saint. So, This is ultimately what we have summarized in our catechism about Christian identity. And I'd like to draw out some applications here for how it is that we are to proceed in thinking rightly about the identity of 
the saints. And the first I would put is this. Now, to really get this doctrine of the communion of saints into our minds and into our hearts and lives, it is important that we understand that we must be broad in our affections towards other Christians, even where we are narrow in our convictions. So what are those two again? Well, I'm saying we should be broad in our affections, but narrow in our convictions. Convictions, what do we mean by this? Well, we believe as Reformed Christians that the Reformed faith is true. I am a Reformed minister. I subscribe to the three forms of unity. I love Reformed theology. I've examined the scriptures, and the more I've, I've studied them, the more thankful I am for our Reformed history, our Reformed fathers, who laid forth these doctrines that do not lord over the scripture, but rather drive us deeper into the scripture and the riches of it. We ought never to compromise the truths of our Reformed confession and our Reformed heritage. They are simply biblical. When it comes to the teachings of election, the teachings of covenant theology and infant baptism, of, of the regulative principle, worshiping God in the way he's commanded, we ought never Never to compromise on these things. They are important to God. They ought to be important to us. Narrow in our convictions, yes, we ought to buy truth and never sell it. But let me tell you this. It ought never be the case that those with narrow convictions ought to have narrow affections. The affections of the heart of God ought to be broad. They ought to have a special love and tenderness and grace and mercy for all of God's children. Where we would contemplate the, uh, the fact that among the uh, free reform churches, there's a few thousand members, we would never want to say that those are all those who will be in heaven. We ought rather to say that there should be a love in our hearts for all true Christians, regardless of their denominational background, even where they would be mistaken, we believe, on points of theology. When I think about this and, and think about what it means to have these two things, a narrowness and of conviction, but a broadness and affection. I'm reminded of that a chapter which we read together from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. And I'll read it from verses 11 to 14. For he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So speaking of Christ's giving of the ministry for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. It's much in that text, wouldn't you agree, that's 
highlighting the importance of sound teaching from uh, ordained ministers. There's much there about not being deceived by false doctrine. But what you see as well is there's this view towards growing in unity, of seeing that the church of Jesus Christ is not uh, completed in, in one sense, but we are a work in progress, as it says in verse 13, until we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We ought to see that we should long for a greater unity among all of Christ's people and realize that even among the the purest of churches on the earth, there are still weaknesses, there are still sins, there is still things that we all must learn. We all must never get beyond this basic thing. Anything that we have in the way of grace or knowledge, it is received as a gift. And we ought to labor and pray for a greater unity among all of God's people in the future. Not writing them off, but rather seeing that there is something there that is precious to the Lord, that we grow together, that we learn from one another, and ultimately subject all things to the word of God. And draw this as well as an application from the basic truth in our catechism. And that is something that is very important, I believe, for those young people who would desire to be married desire to be married and you think about these facts that your most basic identity as a Christian is found in Christ that your greatest unity your greatest fellowship with other human beings is with other Christians and you think for example uh, about what is found in the book of 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? I'm sure you'll tell me, Pastor, well, you'll tell me, well, Pastor, this uh, text here, it is really about idolatry and and the purity of worship. And and so it is. It's, It's drawing really a spiritual lesson from that Old Testament law about not plowing a field with a donkey and an ox yoked together and making an application about spiritual and religious uh, endeavors. And yet, ought we ought not to say that there is a principle here also when it comes to seeking whom we would marry. There can be many things that would attract us to marry this person or that person, but ought it not to be the case that the most important thing we would be looking for is someone who loves the Lord. Someone who has the same desire for knowledge of Christ, of living for him, and of obedience to his word. If you cannot be on the same page spiritually and theologically with someone you would desire to be a spouse with, then you have to really ask yourself the question, is this really what is paramount to me? Is this really what flows out of every, what should, everything else should flow out of, rather? My identity in Christ. And so it is, if we have any desire to speak, about, speak to someone about the prospect of becoming married, it's about spiritual things. 
And it's about our walk with the Lord and our convictions from the word of God that really should characterize our conversations. And of course, I need not tell you, but I, I will as your pastor, that there have been much sorrows and much pains from those who have become unequally yoked to an unbeliever. Where there is a division in the marriage between one who loves the Lord and one who does not. Yes, that is a lawful marriage. Yes, the Lord says that is to be regarded as important. But we recognize that there can be much pain and sorrow from that. We must take great heed to this as it concerns the communion of saints and marriage. With those uh, thoughts, I'd like to move on to the second uh, point uh, from our uh, catechism, and that is the saint's duty. The saint's duty. We find that in uh, the second part of our catechism here, where after listing the, uh, the nature of Christian identity, it lists this concerning the duty of the saints. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. You see, being, um, being a Christian is not like being a, a team of a sports, uh, a sports, uh, a fan of a sports team, I should say. There's nothing wrong with being a fan of a sports team, but you know it's a very different thing to watch a game unfold and to enjoy the, the players playing, and it's another thing to actually be on that team. The reality is that Christianity is no spectator sport. Everyone must be actively involved if they are a true Christian, and this concerns, as we see, the use of gifts. It's something that the teaching of the Bible has as much to say about. It says in uh, that chapter which we read, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Likewise in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same, one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Greek word there is actually charismata, which sounds a little bit like our word for charisma. You know, someone has charisma because they have a, you know, a special ability to communicate or a special kind of personality which really grabs attention. Well, this is a, a special ability, you could say, but it goes much more beyond the personality or merely the ability to communicate. Rather, the charismata or the gifts, these are things which Christ bestows in love to his church in order that she would be built up in spiritual grace and maturity. It is this which is closely connected to the doctrine of the communion of the saints. Because when we see that our identity is in Christ, we must see that everything that has been placed in our corner in the way of gifts is to be deployed in the use of building up his church. The thing to understand about these gifts is that we can sometimes relegate this to those who are called to an office on the consistory. 
And so it is, you say, well, this person is gifted in this way to be a deacon, that person to be an elder, this person to be a minister of the gospel. They are the ones with gifts. And indeed, we, we treasure it when the Lord would uh, call men to those offices, giving them the gifts that are necessary to perform them. But I don't want any one of you to think that because you're not called to be on the consistory that you are not one who's given gifts for the upbuilding of his church. Listen to what we have here in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 to 18. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body. Is, there, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. I encourage you to read that whole chapter and you see how Paul is really using this metaphor of a physical body to explain the church of Jesus Christ. The reality is that each one of us in our individual capacities, in our unique histories, in our outlook, in our personality, every one of you who is a believer in the Lord Jesus, you have gifts. You have gifts that are not to be used just for yourself. They are for the upbuilding of the entire body of Christ. Your ear wouldn't make very much of itself if it were all that there was on a body, but cooperating as it does with your brain, it brings sound and music into your mind. As it cooperates with your body and, and your, your hands and your feet and your nose and your eyes, everything works in harmony. There's a, a greater than the sum of its parts here with the human body. That is how we are each one of us to think about the communion of saints as it concerns ourselves. Just because we don't have this person's gifts, just because we may not be as gifted as that person, does not mean we do not have gifts. It does not mean that they are not to be used. And so, in order to get us thinking about this, I could, of course, speak about many, many different kinds of gifts. We, of course, had a sermon recently about the, um, the principle that every Christian is a kind of deacon, one who is loving, one another, loving the weak and defenseless and the needy within the church family. And I won't repeat some of the things that were said there. Instead, I'd like to zero in on, on some other aspects of giftedness within the church of Christ. First would be uh, this, the very basic principle. We ought to be very thankful for the gifts that are already in use here in our church family. Reality is that there is much going on behind the scenes in any given week that is not going to attract attention, but the reality is that it is precious to the Lord because it is in the service to the body. There would be those 
who among us would visit the sick, that would prepare meals for those in need, that they would visit the elderly. There would be those who are working for the maintenance of our building, those who are preparing the bulletins every week. There are those who are teaching in the homeschool co-op or the Sunday school. There is all number of areas where people are involved. When we would think about these things, we ought to see that there is something supernatural taking place in the organization, in the carrying out of the worship and life of a church family. Those things are evidence of the Spirit of God. When true love from the heart is being deployed, that is something that is very precious to the Lord. Well, the second principle would be this. The second principle is that we ought to be looking for opportunities to manifest our gifts more than we already are, or even to manifest gifts that we've not yet known we had. And for that, let me uh, put some things to us for, for getting our thinking in order here. First thing I would note for us to think about is the reality of the persecuted church. Let's think about that for a moment. You have something that's very gripping to me here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 3. It says, They remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. We ought to think, shouldn't we, not only as just a little church here in London, Ontario, but as part of the global body of Christ. And so for for those of you who come to the prayer meeting on uh, Tuesday mornings at 10 o'clock, ought it be the case, and I speak to myself as well, there ought to be concerted prayer for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are in the midst of persecution. Lands like China under communism. Lands like Saudi Arabia under Islam. Places like Nigeria where religious extremists target Christians and the numbers could be multiplied. Ought we really to be on the lookout, brothers and sisters, for cases in the news where our brothers and sisters in the Lord are in the heat of adversity and conflict? The apostle there says that you are to remember those who are in bonds, those who are in chains, as bound with them. We ought to see ourselves as so united in their struggle for the gospel of Christ and the glory of God that we feel constrained with them to pray, to pray for them, to pray that the Lord would intervene. Indeed, I think it must at least start there. Indeed, there is more that can be done than prayer, but not before we do that much. Let us be those who, with whatever prayer we have, pray with a view towards the needs of the global body of Christ. But this is one example. The second thing I would put to us in the way of, of manifesting more, in the way of gifts, would be this, in, in the area of spiritual conversation. And I don't mean conversation in the sense that the King James sometimes use it and the 
to express all of life, all your behavior, but conversation the way that we speak, of, speak about it, as our words, using our words to speak about spiritual things of the Lord. In that chapter which we read, Ephesians 4, verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So there's the twofold commandment here. One is there is to be no corrupt, no sinful, no mean-spirited, and no um, sexually immoral or blasphemous talk to proceed out of the mouth of a Christian. But on the flip side, on the flip side that our speech to one another can be as a use to build them up, to edify them, to grow them in the knowledge of Christ, indeed to minister grace to them. And of course, there's a great many things that we must speak about as um, those who love one another, who want, are interested in everything that's going on. But I think we all can recognize that, especially on the Lord's Day, but really throughout the week, if we do not prioritize and intentionally speak about spiritual things, it will be things of a secular nature, however important, that will crowd out spiritual things. Very basic thing, which is that as you're listening to the sermon, it's good to, to think about a few things or jot them down for you to speak about down in the fellowship downstairs or when you go home to your family or when perhaps you have occasion to speak to your neighbor later on about the sermon that you heard. Just a few moments to speak about something that the Lord revealed to you in his word, whether in the way of his promises of the gospel or in the way of your duties or of love or whatever it may be. And it's the sort of thing where if we're out of practice, it can be hard to stretch that muscle, to exert ourselves, to think about things that concern our sin and misery and the deliverance from sin and misery and our gratitude towards the Lord and the greatness of Christ's salvation, but the more we strive to do that, the more in prayer and humility we seek the grace to truly speak of spiritual things, will not the Lord use it in our midst? I think perhaps it's true that in in our churches, sometimes even just speaking to one another about our relationship with the Lord can be hard. There can be barriers, there can be culture, there can be personality, whatever, but it is worth it, congregation. It is worth it to make ourselves vulnerable and honest before one another such that we would speak even about spiritual struggles or or speak about, about sweet times we've had with the Lord. What have we to lose? What have we to lose in the way of pride and arrogance and, and false shows of of respectability. No, these things don't matter. What matters is that this is a place where the language of Canaan is spoken, the language of that heavenly Zion, where we actually take the name of Christ upon our lips, and so that those who come among us would have a savor of heaven when they depart. 
And surely, if that is not expressed, at least in some measure, how can we say that this is indeed an expression of the communion of the saints and, and that we're not just another society of people who gather together? No, there must be this spiritual conversation. Let us seek the Lord's grace to manifest that gift according to our ability. But let's further speak about this, and that is the importance of hospitality. It's interesting to note that here in First Peter chapter 4, in the verse immediately before, speaking about the use of gifts, from the Lord, it says in First Peter 4, verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. And I think that it's good that that come after our discussion about spiritual conversation because it really does go with it. It's a very basic Christian discipline of the opening up of our homes to those of the household of faith and those without it. It's a concrete expression of our love for one another when we're able to spend time with one another even outside the Lord's Day worship and we're able to take an interest in their lives and to share occasions where we can simply speak to one another about the things of the Lord. And I'll tell you that it it can be a very powerful way in which the Lord testifies of his grace to those in need. You take someone who's not been exposed to true Christian love and and you bring them into your home and you open your Bible and you sing your, your psalms and you share a meal with one another. If they see something, there's something here in this home of of a spiritual love, a bond of of joy and of peace and of respect and and that is something that is very powerful to a watching world. It can be indeed the, the first step into bringing people into an awareness of their spiritual need. I think it's, it's been rightly said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And sometimes as Christians, we're very eager to share how much we know. We have, we have the gospel, we have doctrine, we have truth. But if there is not love that is expressed concretely in the opening up of our homes, then I fear that there can be little in the way of evidence to those who see no need for the truth of the word. It's these things, congregation, which can be intimidating starting out. You, th- you think about these things. Well, you know, you're focusing upon prayer for the, the church around the world and, and speaking words of a spiritual nature to one another, of, of exercising hospitality. If we are not currently doing those things, then it can be discouraging to see that, that we maybe have a long ways to go. But the encouragement is this congregation, that the Lord Jesus is worth it. The Lord Jesus, abundant in goodness and truth. Think about what we have there in in this chapter, where it says in Ephesians 4, verses 4 and following, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. 
where we do see that these things are not just words, that these things have a reality to them. The gospel is real. The gospel is true. Christ is my Lord. Christ is my Savior. If this has come home to us at all, we must know that he will not abandon us when we truly become serious about serving him, about living out our identity and taking up our duty. No, it is there. In the way of obedience, congregation, that you will be given some of the most marvelous testimonies of the glory of Christ. It's in the path of obedience and submission to his will. You think of uh, uh, Peter there. He's there in the boat and, and Jesus tells him to cast his nets upon the other side. And Peter says, well, I've been swimming all night long. I can't imagine this will make a difference. But at your word, Lord, I obey. And of course, the nets, they were full to bursting. And to fall down at the feet of the Savior and say, Lord, depart from me, for I am not worthy. I am a sinful man. And Jesus lifted him up and said, I will make you a fisher of men. Christ will do great things, congregation, when we rightly understand our identity in him and live that out. May it please the Lord to reveal these things unto our hearts.